Thank you, Lath. Good morning, everybody. We had an unwelcome visitor from the north show up yesterday, did we not? It's a little cool. I thought we were going to escape this kind of weather, but apparently not. It did provide for a rite of passage at my house yesterday. Um, Drew, as every parent knows, there's this period of time for young people, whenever you put a timer to them, they will do just basically anything that you ask. So it used to be, if, I, if you'll go get me a tea, I'll time you. And, and it was just eager. They couldn't wait to do so. So yesterday, we were gonna, I, I needed some dry sticks collected. And knowing that Drew was far past the timer trick, I uh, brought out the hatchet. So if you can make it a big deal... Son, I'm going to let you use this hatchet. I'd like you to go gather some sticks for me. And boy, he was all in at that point. So it did provide for that. It remind, this has nothing to do with my message. It did, it did remind me um, of a time when the older boys um, were being a bit mischievous and got an axe out. And Candace was busy doing something else. And I believe Will and Jake, I don't know who the mastermind was, but I could guess, took an old shoe and cut the shoe towards the toes, right at the toe. So cut into the shoe. It's elaborate. Cut into the shoe so he could still get his foot in it. So Candace was distracted. They cut into the shoe. They take an ax and they, they put it in the cut where the shoe is. And Will puts his foot in there and wedges it into the shoe. And Jake goes to get my wife to say, mom, you've got to come. Will has cut his foot off and has no, uh, has no practical joke that involves cutting off of appendages as complete without dumping ketchup. They even had ketchup there. They had the foot. Will was down here. Candace comes around the corner, sees the ax in the shoe and almost passes out. And the boys, I think, immediately know they've taken it a step too far. So <clears throat> anyway, again, it's just <laughs> prompted my thoughts. Anyway, good morning. Uh, today's my fourth message, so the third in our series on biblical themes. And I stated in my, my initial message that my preferred method of teaching is exposition. And, and that is this as a more topical series, okay? And we, we've known that. But today, it's going to be most evident that this is a topical series. Uh, today, we're going to be t- doing a sweeping survey of an enormous topic. And there is really no way for me to share all that is on my heart regarding this matter this morning. But my hope, as I stated at the outset of our series, is to provide a framework for the reader when examining scripture. That's been my purpose. And a framework helps while reading any portion of the Bible. You may be reading along and think to yourself, oh, this passage mentions creation. In creation, I know that God created from nothing and he established and demonstrates his sovereignty over all things, that he created mankind in his image which bestows meaning and dignity to his creatures. Or when reading Psalm 51 and David says something like, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, you will know that this is referring to the fall of man and our inherited sin nature. It helps me, and I hope that it will help you. But just to give a rundown for those who have not been here, the first week we discussed the Bible, what it is, and what it says about itself. And since then, we have covered the theme of creation. And last week, we discussed the fall. And today, we will talk about the theme of redemption, okay? I stated last week that the message was not going to end on a good note. 
the fact that Adam and Eve and the rest of the human race through them as our representatives, if you remember we noted from Romans 5.12, we rebelled against our creator and we ruined ourselves. And remember, it is truly ruined ourselves, not injured or damaged, but ruined. And we talked about how this event severed relationships. First and foremost, our relationship with God was severed, but also our relationships with one another with our own selves and with the creation itself. And we talked about the depravity that came with sin and how quickly the human race plunged downward and how already back in Genesis 6, it tells us that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, said Genesis 6. In this state, man is completely unable to help himself. That's where we're at alienated from God and without hope. That was how last week ended, a little rough. Today we get to focus on the good news, the grace and mercy of God in redemption. And church, apart from redemption, we have no hope, no hope. We would be forever lost in our sin and live in that state of collective brokenness that we discussed last week and be doomed. And church, without an understanding of sin, that's why it's so important, without an understanding of sin, there can be no real appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we'll be considering several passages today. There'll be a lot of page turning. But our jumping off point and the scripture reading for this morning will come from the book of Ephesians. It's simply one verse. Ephesians chapter one and verse seven. It's very short, so I would ask you to stand and remain standing for an opening prayer. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. This is Paul. Listen to what Paul says in his introduction to the Ephesians. He says this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Father, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts for the good news. And Father, we're so grateful for the good news. Father, for without it, we are hopeless, lost in our sin, alienated from you. But Father, because of your goodness and your grace, you extend to us salvation through Jesus Christ, through faith and through faith alone in his name. Father, we are grateful for this. I pray that your Holy Spirit would reign in this place, guide and direct us as we consider your word and consider the great mercy with which you show us. Father, thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So much of my pre preparation time for today's message was really taken up with the question, how do I frame the subject of redemption? In our talk on creation, we were covering basically the first two chapters of Genesis. Last week, while discussing the fall, we covered basically chapter three of Genesis. So in a sense, redemption covers Genesis four through Revelation 22. That's a lot of acreage to plow in 30 minutes. And we know that the need for redemption was established last week, namely that sin entered the world, correct? So my framework regarding this tremendous topic is going to be broken down as follows. One, the definition of redemption. 
Next, the shadows of redemption in the Old Testament. Then we'll move to the means of redemption and then finally the effect of redemption. So let's plow ahead and we'll first start with a definition of redemption. We're gonna start with a theological definition of the word. The word redemption is a very Bible-y word. It's not a word that we hear in common language very often. It's a very churchy word, the idea or the word redemption, okay? Any accurate theological definition is rooted and grounded in the Bible, and it simply takes the, the Hebrew and the Greek words, and it looks at how they are used throughout the whole of Scripture, so listen to how the New International Dictionary of the Bible speaks of redemption. Redemption is. I always, when we're defining something, I always like when it starts out, redemption is, quote, a metaphor used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe God's merciful and costly action on behalf of his people, sinful human beings. The basic meaning of the word is release or freedom on the payment of a price, in a sense, buying back something that belongs to you or that you somehow have a right to, or deliverance by a costly method. When used of God, it does not suggest that he paid a price to anyone, but rather that his mercy required his almighty power and involved the greatest possible depth of suffering. To appreciate the New Testament theme of redemption, the position of human beings as slaves of sin must be assumed. Thus, they must, set, thus they must be set free in order to become the liberated servants of the Lord, end quote. That's an idea of what redemption is. It is a buying back of something. We consider Mark 10, 45, if you wanna mark that passage down. Mark 10 and verse 45 says this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here again, the use of the metaphor ransom does not require that the question to whom was the ransom paid be answered. This is an important point. The emphasis, rather, is on a costly sacrifice or the giving of a life. One of my favorite authors, and you'll hear me quote him many times, is C.S. Lewis. I love The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I love The Chronicles of Narnia. I, mere Christianity had just a profound effect on me. I, I commend C.S. Lewis to you. But I have a problem with a few of his things, and this is one. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, if you remember, if you've seen the movie, there's a scene uh, where the white witch is brought before Aslan, and there's this idea, and Aslan is a representative of Christ in the, in the book, in the movie. There's this idea that Aslan somehow is paying the white witch something, a ransom. I don't agree with that. I, I, I think that's a false idea. God does not owe Satan anything. God's justice demands that a price be paid for our sin, okay? Just keep that in mind. So in a nutshell, this is something God graciously has done for his people. He is not obligated to it. There is nothing innately in us that compels him to do it. It's something he desires to do and only he can do it. It also comes through great suffering, okay? So that's the definition of redemption in a nutshell. Let's move to the second 
item. The shadows of redemption in the Old Testament. Okay, shadows of redemption in the Old Testament. Many times in the Old Testament, God establishes what I will call the portrait of redemption. If you go back through some of the Old Testament stories, God is painting a picture for us for what redemption is. That is, if you want to use a term from literature, he foreshadows what will ultimately take place in the plan of redemption. And let's note some of these examples. There are many in the Old Testament. Genesis 22, and it's worthy to turn there. Genesis 22, and you might immediately recognize this passage in Genesis 22 of Abraham being asked to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. Very important passage, very deep passage to consider. So many things. We're not going to dive directly in, but it's something to consider because it is a portrait of redemption. Let's read verses 1 to 5 out of Genesis 22. It says this, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son. Remember that, it's a refrain in this chapter. Your only son, Abraham, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So we have the picture here. Abraham is being tested. Abraham is taking Isaac to do something that God is calling him to do. And Abraham is going to be obedient to this. The altar is built. But where's the sacrifice, Isaac? will come to ask. He sees all this going on. I, I, I sometimes try to put myself in Isaac's position. He's, he's going through with his dad and he sees the altar and he sees the, the wood for the burnt offering and he's thinking, where's the sacrifice? We know the story. God graciously stays Abraham's hand, does he not? Verse 13, listen to this. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide. Think about that for a second. Tuck that away. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice amazing thought and the refrain, your only son. And this is an interesting thought from this portrait. Mount Moriah is where we believe this was taking place with Abraham and Isaac. And I'm not gonna pound my fist up here, but some scholars believe that Mount Moriah could be the same as the hill of Calvary. Okay? God tested Abraham and was gracious to stay Abraham's hand, but as if to say, Abraham, one day on this hill, 
my own son will be offered as a sacrifice and the deed will be carried out for the sake of my people. Beloved, the grace of God is magnanimous, is it not? Another portrait of redemption in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. Naomi and Ruth are in need, and it was the right of the next of kin to take their needs upon himself. So we have Boaz as the kinsman redeemer, a provider. It provides a portrait of redemption for us. And another thing in that story, and again, we're not going to dig too deep, but the book of Ruth, another thing to note from the book is that Ruth is a Moabitess, is not a Jew. So we see the pattern of redemption extending to the Gentiles already early in the Old Testament. Perhaps the clearest of the shadows comes in the story of the Exodus. You know the story? The children of Israel are in physical bondage in a foreign land. A prophet, Moses, is sent from God to lead his people out of bondage and give them a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that God had promised to Abraham. They are redeemed from the land of Egypt by God's mighty hand. And you might remember the institution of the Passover where the blood of the lamb on the doorpost was the sign that kept the death angel at bay. Let's turn to Exodus just right quick. Exodus 12, familiar story. What we're doing is we're looking at typology in the Old Testament. You have Moses, you have Boaz, you have Abraham being this type, this redeemer theme is set in all through the Old Testament to point forward to something that is coming for completion. Exodus 12, verse one. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your, make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Skipping down to verse seven. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Skipping down, 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet. In other words, they're ready to go and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God sustains them in the desert after the exodus. He sustains them in the desert. He makes a covenant with them that they shall be his people and he shall be their God. Church Passover is still one of the main Jewish traditions to this day, a tradition I believe that God originally gave to them so they would recognize when the ultimate Passover lamb would come. The remainder of the Old Testament tells the story of God preserving a line through which the Messiah or the Redeemer would come. A story of repeated times of obedience and then failure on the part of the Jewish nation to remain faithful to God. Next point, the means of redemption. 
How are we redeemed? Much like the children of Israel, we are in bondage. This time held fast by sin and not an Egyptian pharaoh. Sin is a much more devastating taskmaster. And our sin is such that we have not the power to do one thing about it. To, to what or to whom or to, who, to whom do we turn? Let's turn in our New Testament to Matthew chapter four. Again, lots of scripture to, to consider as we do this sweeping survey of redemption. Matthew chapter four. Remember the context of, of Matthew chapter four? Remember the end of Matthew chapter three? We have Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist and the spirit of God descended like a dove upon him and the voice from heaven has said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's how we end chapter three of Matthew. What is the very next thing that happens in Matthew chapter four? What is the very next thing that happens? Well, we're told, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by who? By the devil, okay? So we have the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. We have the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove and the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the next moment, Jesus is led away into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And what do we have a picture of here? The second Adam, okay? The second Adam, this time in a desert and not in a garden. John chapter one. John chapter one, verse 25. You don't have to turn to all these if you don't want. If you wanna write them down, I commend them to you. John chapter one, starting at verse 25. Again, remember the context. This is the introduction of John. Listen to what's going on here. John chapter one, starting at verse 25. They asked him, that would be the Pharisees, talking to John the Baptist, that's the context. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Listen to verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist we're talking about, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He has come. The one promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. God promised he would send one from the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the servant and he, the serpent, and he has come. The Redeemer is here. That's what John the Baptist is saying. All of this foreshadowing that's gone on through the Old Testament, pointing to the one who is going to fulfill all things, and John the Baptist stands up as the last Old Testament prophet and says, there he is, the Lamb who will take away the sin of the world. Romans chapter three. You see how all this is tying in. We've gone through the Old Testament, the Gospels, now we're gonna touch on a letter of Paul. Romans chapter three. 
Again, if you're into highlighting and underlining parts of your Bible, this would be highly recommended. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 21, we're kind of going to focus in on verse 24, but listen to this. Paul paints a wonderful picture for us here, and let's focus on verse 24, but I'm going to start at verse 21. It says this. This is Paul, and again, context. Chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, Paul is basically saying there's no hope. There's no hope, and in chapter 3, he turns a corner because he's going to point and shine his light on the Redeemer. Listen to this. Romans chapter three, verse 21. Listen to this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Listen to this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, listen to verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wow. And are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified because Jesus redeemed us with his blood. That's the answer. Well, some may ask, well, how can God just excuse all that sin? Well, the answer is right there in that passage. By sending a perfect sacrifice to die in our stead. That's how he can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly because he has provided a sacrifice in his own son. We are brought back out of bondage into freedom. It's the good news. We are granted righteousness through faith because Jesus redeemed us or bought us back. Man, that's good stuff. If you want a great summation or continuity of last week's message with this week's, turn on a few pages to Romans 5, and we touched on it last week. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this. We're going to read verse 12 and then skip down to 18. But listen, this is a summation of two messages right here in a few verses by Paul. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Bad news, right? Romans 5, 12 Bad news. Skip down to 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that was the first Adam, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow, that will preach. Nothing needs to be said. The actions of Adam in the garden brought forth sin and death. 
The action of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, brings redemption through his perfect sacrifice on the basis of faith alone. Who can receive this blessing, blessed redemption? Paul answers later in Romans. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Before we move to the final point, I'd add a thought, and this would be for your further study as well, because the, 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 the two things I'm going to point to you are vast and they, they are worthy of series on their own. But when considering the means of our redemption, it's fair to ask the question, why? Okay, I'm not forgetting that question. That question should be in our minds. Why did God choose to redeem a fallen people? Two reasons, which on their own, again, are worthy of an entire series. But first, and it's gonna be short, for the glory of God's name alone. That's number one. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 32. If you wanna jot that down, examine that a little bit. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 32. God redeems for the glory of his name alone. Second, so simple, but such a profound comfort. Sunday School 101. Why did God choose to redeem? John 3, 16. We all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Lastly, what should be the effect of us in light of our redemption? And I can't go too far here without infringing on next week's message. So some of this you may hear next time, but if you want, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. And again, establishing the context of these two verses. The context is Paul trying to get the immoral Corinthians to understand their new position as the redeemed, okay? Paul goes to these towns, he sets up churches, he preaches the gospel, he's dealing with the Corinthians. If you've read Corinthians, you know what kind of things he's dealing with with the Corinthians. The Corinthian believers were plagued with gross sexual immorality. They were suing each other in court. They were getting drunk at communion. They were forming factions. They truly were, as one pastor referred to them, the cruddy Corinthians. So Paul's addressing them, okay? And after taking them to the woodshed, if you will, for a bit, Paul pleads with them, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Listen to what Paul says. He's talking to them as a redeemed people. Even in their struggles, should give us some encouragement. Even in their struggles, Paul is dealing with the Corinthians and he says this in the answer to what, is the, what should the effect be on us. This is what he says to them. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are what? What's the, what, was, what does he say? For you are what? Bought with a price. That's the whole idea of redemption right there in that passage. You are not your own, Corinthians, for you were bought with a price. And what is the point? Last verse. So glorify God in your body. Stop doing this, Corinthians. Stop acting like the unredeemed. You have experienced the grace of God. Live like it. 
Why do you continue to wallow in the mire from which Christ has so graciously redeemed you, Paul is asking. Does that hit you between the eyes? Hits me hard. One more passage or two, 1 Peter. We're almost done. 1 Peter chapter one. I've said this before, but if you're not familiar with 1 Peter, in the context of the world we live in right now, I encourage you to get familiar with 1 Peter as a church in times of great struggle. 1 Peter chapter one, 13 to 19. Again, Paul is writing, excuse me, Peter is writing to a church that is getting ready to suffer great persecution. So that's who he's writing to. Listen to what Peter says. Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, they're in a land that is not their home. That's why he uses the word exile. Knowing that you were ransomed, there's that word, the idea of redemption right there. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Live like the redeemed, for that is why you were redeemed. That's what Peter's saying. God redeems us for his purposes to demonstrate his kingdom while we are on this earth. Paul says it another way. You don't have to turn there, but Romans 12, probably familiar with the passage. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, basically says, present your bodies a living sacrifice for it is your spiritual service of worship not to be conformed to the world. Church, that is our task on this earth. That's why we are here. To make the invisible kingdom visible. That's what our purpose is. That's why Christ redeems us and brings us to himself as the church to go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. So much to say. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. I'm not gonna turn there if you wanna write it down. Same idea. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 to 10. So we've, re, we've defined redemption. We've looked at how God and his mercy foreshadowed our coming redemption in the Old Testament. We have considered the means of our redemption and the effect being redeemed should have on all of us. Beloved, we get very caught up in this world. Don't think I'm talking at you. I should say, I get very caught up in this world. And I know we have responsibilities while on this earth. And that is according to God's plan. But how often do we just bask in the light of our redemption? I can tell you I don't do it nearly enough. 
I'm the worst about getting tangled up in the cares of this world to perhaps a sinful degree. But we must remember the fact that a sovereign creator loved us enough to redeem us out of bondage and allow that to reign in our minds. We have to put our minds on such things. Put your mind on things above, the scripture says. Again, Paul, I I don't know where else to go but scripture. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this verse has been on my mind for weeks. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I encourage you to write it down, but listen to this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is amazing. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Christ, to be sin, that is the language, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We need to remember with all the things that are vying for our attention and affection that God sent forth his son for us and for his glory. It staggers the mind if we're thinking about it. And can I submit to you, church, that the apex or the high point of human history is not found in any scientific discovery, modern invention, or technological breakthrough. The apex of human history is a two-pronged event that spanned a mere 72 hours in a city in Israel some 2,000 years ago. At the apex of human history stands a bloody Roman cross and an empty tomb. All else pales in comparison. It is the only hope for mankind. Otherwise, we perish in our sins. Do you know him today? I ask you to examine your hearts this morning. I'm gonna leave you with a quote from the late Englishman. I've quoted him before, Malcolm Muggeridge. He's been dead many years. Lived a life of complete debauchery before being converted. But this is what he says. He has a way with words. He says this, we look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then dispersed, one nation dominant and then another. In one lifetime, I have seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world, the great majority of them convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song that God who's made them mighty would make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. An Italian clown announced he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. A murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon and more humane than Marcus Aurelius. I've seen America wealthier and in terms of military weaponry more powerful than all the rest of the world put together so that Americans, had they so wished could have outdone an Alexander or Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests, all in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. 
England now part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin a forbidden name and the regime he helped to found and dominate for some three decades. America haunted by fears of running out of that precious fluid that keeps the motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of endless wars all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. But behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind may still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. Church, I present him to you today as the way, the truth, and the life our redeemer and the lover of our souls. Let's pray. Father, we run out of words to consider these things. They are too great for us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just ground this idea into our minds. And Father, that in the midst of of struggles, of pain, of joy, of all these things that at root we bask and we take time to consider the blessed truth of our redemption through Jesus Christ. Father, it is our only hope. We have no hope apart from it. And Father, without you initiating this grand plan of redemption, we are alienated from you and can do nothing about it. But because of your grace extended towards us in Jesus Christ, we are saved and we are redeemed and we have hope and we can look out at this world and we can know that at root we are redeemed and we can go out and we can be the church. We can be the hands and feet of Christ because of what you have done for us in your grace Just imprint it upon our minds. Help us to be thankful. Help us to understand, Father, that our spiritual service of worship is not to be conformed to the image of this world, but to be conformed to the image of Christ that you may receive all the glory. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. We are humbled by this whole idea and we are so thankful to you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our benediction will be from Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. And after I read it, we will be dismissed. So the benediction is Romans 8, excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. And listen to what Paul says and think about it in light of what we just talked about. This is Paul. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Church, go out in the humble confidence of your redemption. You're dismissed this morning.